This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today. We have Jared Graybill. Jared, thank you so much for being here, mate. And thanks for having me. Now, mate, you've got a really interesting story. I was looking in um, when I was having a chat with the producers before uh, before we brought you on. You're the CEO of Superfit Foods and E3, uh, which we'll find out more about that in a moment. But you've had quite the story. You've had quite the upbringing, uh, quite, I guess you could say, the birth into the business realm and the entrepreneurial realm. But something I'm always curious that I ask all of my guests, mate, is if you went to a dinner party and you knew no one there, there's eight other people there all sitting around a table and um, all of a sudden, you know, everyone sits down, the room goes very quiet and the attention all of a sudden goes to you and everyone's looking at you and someone just says, you know, very casually, so Jared, what do you do? How do you answer that question, mate? <laughs> I, well, it's a little different now um, and you, you wouldn't know this, but about a month ago, uh, I officially sold Super Fit Foods. Congratulations, um, mate. Well done. Thank you. Uh, definitely a great exit. Um, and, uh, very, very pleased with how I did with that. Um, so my, my answer is a little bit different now. Sometimes I stumble over it being an entrepreneur, but now, uh, I'm struggling with it because I am a consultant, you know, I own E3, which is a consulting agency. Um, and so now I'm kind of juggling, like, do I say consultant? Uh, do I say entrepreneur? Uh, I'm not sure what it's like where you're at, but here that's kind of a buzzword. It doesn't mean much. Yeah. Um, and so I, I still haven't figured it out. <laughs> Mate, that's fine. And that's why I asked that question because there's not a lot of um, people that really do, do feel comfortable answering that question. And it's funny because over here, it's very similar. The word entrepreneur, most people who you know title themselves if they're at a networking event as an entrepreneur normally classifies them as a broke hobbyist. You know, someone yeah. who's, you know, chasing a dream but hasn't quite got there yet, hasn't worked out a label that uh, fits anything other than that one, uh, which is quite broad. But, mate, you've got a, a pretty interesting story. So when, when you go back in your timeline, where, where does your story begin for you, mate? Oh, man, I could start from like age two, um, but I won't. And so really for me, I, I guess my entrepreneurial roots start around the time that I was uh, 11 years old. Um, growing up, so I'll fast forward some of the, the early childhood stuff, but around two or three, uh, transitioned from living with my mom and my dad. And, um, for about 10 years, my mom wasn't really in the picture. So me and my brother were raised by a single dad, a young, young dad. Um, and I bounced to five different elementary schools. I got kicked out of four of them. So, uh, I had some issues adapting there. And then finally in middle school, I got to stay in the same middle school. So in sixth grade, I kind of planted some roots and on the way to school, me and these twins, uh, they were also from the other side of the tracks. Like myself, we were somewhat scrappy, low-income neighborhood, poor white kids. And um, they were really good at stealing and they took pride in it. And I was not. And I wasn't that type of guy. I always think people are watching me. So, But anyways, on the way to school, they would, they would steal a bag of popsicles. I would distract the cashier and then we get to school and I would sell it because I'm good at that. And we'd sell like 30 cents a pop or something make about 30 bucks because it's a hundred bag of popsicles. And we did that for a couple of weeks. And um, I, I got to the point where I had enough money that I could just buy my own bag of popsicles. Um, even at a young age, I was convicted with the whole stealing thing. So I wasn't, I didn't love it. So I figured, well, now I can buy my own. And so I created early arbitrage, right? Like buying and selling at a higher price um, because we didn't have allowance. We had free lunch 
And, but we didn't know it was free lunch because we just thought everybody got free lunch until the day I realized that there was kids that were eating different things at lunch. Um, so I wanted to buy the pizza that they could afford or the spicy chicken sandwiches. And that turned into something a little different very quickly. Uh, later on in sixth grade, I smoked weed for the first time, um, fell in love with it. I don't want to say I got hooked because I'm not sure it's addictive, but fell in love with it. Uh, I think more or less because I got to hang out with some older kids and um, needed money to buy pot. So I used the popsicle money to buy a little pot. And then next thing you know, some kids are asking me for a nickel bag here and there. And so I remember the first time I sold five nickel bags from 20 bucks worth of weed, which made me five bucks. And I thought this, how does this work? You know, and I'm always been good at math. And I thought, well, I can buy a 30 bag, keep some for myself, sell some, make 10 bucks, have money for the weekend, have free weed. And then it turned into 50, 200, 500, and that was from, you know, from the time I was 11 till about 17 and a half, um, that was a progressive career option for me. And of course, back then in Florida, it was certainly frowned upon. It's still illegal in Florida, but half the country it's legal now. So that's probably a, you know, a career you can pursue in other parts of America. Um, so that was my early entrepreneurial journey. And I was really, really good at it. I took a lot of pride in it. I moved out at 16. I got my own place. And um, school was easy for me. So after school, it was kids, their parents, the teachers, everyone buying pot from me. Wow. Um, yeah. So you were the man. Was, you, were the, uh, you were supplying teachers, parents. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's, yeah. that's quite a position of influence within your community. <laughs> it was. I kind of had it made. Senior year was a, was a good year for me. And until you were good I got at school pop. as well. You're quite academic. Yeah. I was um, it's so weird, man. I was one of those kids in, in even like middle school that got pulled out of class to go to alpha. And I, I didn't really understand what it was, but it was just for kids with better grades and better reading skills and stuff. Um, and so in high school, I, I was in advanced classes too. And a lot of that stuff was easy for me. Uh, I took it for granted. Um, I probably could have gotten in a much better school and all that stuff, but um, it was just do the bare minimum, get A's. And get, I, my dad told me from a young age, if you want to go to college, you got to pay for it yourself. So in Florida, we have something called uh, bright future scholarship. You got to get like a 3.6 or more GPA average or something. So my, that was my minimum, just get that so I can get a full ride to college. And I did. Um, but after school, man, it was, it was sell and smoke pot, watch the 300 movie over and over and over again or something <laughs> like that. Um, and I had my own place. So it was, it was cool. People were just in and out, staying the night, bringing me food. It was cool. And then uh, it all came tumbling down. Yeah. Uh, like most good drug dealing stories, um, it, there's an end to it. Uh, and so, um, I was 17 and a half. It was like towards the end of my senior year and the cops had this whole rap and they had a warrant and the whole cliche movie thing, um, went through the whole house, took all the weed, took all the money. Um, and I got charged with felony possession, attempted to distribute something like that, a felony possession and selling narcotics, stuff like that. Um, but I was a minor. And as a minor, I had been arrested maybe six or seven times. I was in and out of juvie, on and off of probation for different things from trespassing to battery to cigarette possession, stuff like that, you know, when you're a kid. Um, but this changed a little bit because I thought, well, I'm 17, I'm good to go. They ended up charging me as an adult. And uh, so that was different. It was an eye opener. And they'd waited until towards the end of my senior year to really convict me. And I spent the summer after my senior year in jail. So wow. I, How you want to spend uh, the summer after senior year, yeah? All my friends are packing up, going to college. And 
I anticipated going to the University of Florida, um, but that didn't happen. I ended up going to jail and uh, spent about two and a half months in there. Um, then by the time I got out, all my friends were gone. My college opportunities were gone. Um, ended up enrolling at a local community college, and I spent two years on house arrest when I got out of jail. Yeah, right. That sounds like it was a pretty um, humbling fall from grace. <laughs> yeah. And were you, um, uh, with time served, were you in um, um, were you in county? Were you in a, what were you? What was the the, the period of time yeah. served like? So I was in county, um, which I would argue is worse than prison. Yeah. And, uh, and the reason for that, obviously, is because you're not supposed to be in county a long time, so they make it very, very horrible. So that that for, for the people in Australia who don't know what county is, that's the equivalent of a remand center. It's where you go before you get processed and put into a big jail. Yeah. Um, so in county jail in, in Florida, especially in Polk County, where I'm from, is like I remember reading it was like rated the worst county jail you can be in in the country or something. Yeah, right. Um, so scared straight would be a great way to explain it because growing up for me, I had a chip on my shoulder. It was obvious we were poor. You know, I was the kid growing up drawing a Nike symbol on my socks. I remember getting in trouble because it got in the wash and I got my butt whooped for getting ink all over the clothes in the wash. Cause I was just trying to fit in. Um, and so I always just had this man, life sucks. It's too hard. I'm going to do whatever I want. And uh, I, I'm going to, do whatever I need to do to get ahead. And I was also small. I was 95 pounds going into high school. I graduated at 130, very scrappy. Cause being a white kid in the projects, like you, you gotta be scrappy. Um, so I was just always, I was very friendly. So I had a big social circle. I wasn't like a, a, an asshole, you know, um, but to the system and to, to the world and even to God, I was like, you know, I didn't believe in God for that period of time in my life. And uh, jail was was an awakening because it was like, man, I thought life was bad. Jail's bad. Um, Do you remember the moment where you got in to county and maybe it was a series of moments or a moment where you just went, man, something's got to change. Like, was there a was there was there like a a trigger for that? Yeah, there's there's a couple small ones and and one big one. One of the first small ones was like three or four days in a jail. I was dating a girl and that was about to go to Daytona beach to go to school. And she was like one of the hottest girls in high school. And like, I took a lot of pride in that. And, um, on the phone, she was like, Jared, you know, it's, it's over, right? Like you're in jail and I'm going to college. And I was like, Oh, that sucks. You know, like I, I thought when I got out, this would work out and it, and it didn't. Um, so that sucked. And then, uh, one night it was about a week into being in jail and my mom had written me a letter. We, we re, sort of re rehabbed our relationship around 11 or 12 years old. Um, and so she wrote me a letter. I knew that I'd cry if I read it. And so I waited um, until I had the opportunity to get a loan just in case I cried, which I was pretty sure I would. And so um, county jail is, is a dorm room, basically. It's like an L-shaped dorm room. And I remember the night, like vividly, it was the NBA finals and the Celtics were playing the heat, like game five, probably. And everyone's downstairs looking up at this really small TV, like 20 feet up, watching the game. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to read this letter. So I pulled the letter out from underneath my pillow, read it. And my mom calls me baby boy. And, you know, of course, I'm like, I'm not bawling, but, you know, like grown man crying. Um, And so that sucked, man, um, to... I knew that I had let my mom down and my mom had been in and out of prison. And so it was growing up for me, the bar was really low. 
And so I thought at this point I had really fell below the bar and I didn't think that I could with, with my family and my upbringing. Um, so that really sucked for me to let someone down that I really didn't think that I could let down. Um, and so I kind of wiped my face off and put the letter back and I'm walking on the second floor, just kind of back and forth on the second floor. And I walk by a room, uh, full of inmates and like 16 people in a room that fits like six people. And I just glance in and they all glance back at me and I'm like, I want nothing to do with whatever prison escape they're planning. You know, like, <laughs> why, why is there 16 dudes in a room? So I just glance in and I glance away and they're like, Hey, homie. And I just kind of look back in. They're like, do you believe in God? And I was like, no, I don't. Um, they're like, well, he believes in you. Come on in here. And I was like, I got nothing else to do, man. Uh, so I went in and I sat down and it was really um, different because they made a space for me. And then he preached a sermon and it was, I'm not sure where your faith lies or anything like that. Um, but it was just one of those messages that speaks right to your soul. And, uh, and I gave my life to God in that moment. It was probably the first time in my life that I had felt like the tangible presence of, uh, of, a, of a creator. You know, um, I remember going to church as a kid and like raising your hand every single time. Um, but I had no idea what it meant. And my dad didn't really pressure us either way. He, he didn't believe. And so um, I thought, you know, if, if these guys are willing to show me grace, there must be uh, someone, someone bigger than us. Um, so I, I started to read the Bible at that point. I gave my life to Christ and I became a Christian. Uh, the unfortunate thing about salvation in jail or prison is that it's not a great place for sanctification, which is what we consider to be growing in your faith. Because the next day, those same guys are stealing, they're fighting, they're <laughs> cheating in cards, right? They're not really setting the best example of like how to walk out the Christian lifestyle. Um, they're just basically acting like everybody else that I had grown up with and spent time in the trap house with, you know? Um, so not a lot changed after that, but my faith did. And so that was a really big pivotal moment. And so I, I began to live um, for, try to live for a purpose versus for my own self gratification only. Um, and then one more experience in jail happened. So at this point I had begun to read the Bible and think more about like esoteric mindset kind of stuff. Like what, in, what am I, what, what am I here for? What does God want me to do with my life? Um, thinking about other people more. And uh, I quickly became known as like the in-house trainer because after I quit smoking weed right before jail, I started working out like every day. Um, I had always liked it, but weed was like my number one thing. And I'd get some push-ups and some curls in if I wasn't stoned. Um, so in jail is all I had to do, but it's not like the prison movies where you have bench presses and all that stuff, basketball courts, you just make stuff up inside. It's like COVID workouts. Um, and I was pretty creative and I would come up with stuff every day. We'd do pull-ups from the second floor. We'd fill a pillowcase up with shampoo bottles and do curls with it and stuff. Um, and so one day a guy was like, Jared, you should be a personal trainer when you get out of here. And I didn't know what that was. Uh, so I asked him, I was like, what is that? And he's like, they, they pay people to train them just, just like you're doing now. And I was like, that's it. Like, that's what God wants me to do with my life. Um, yeah. Wow. So when I got out. So you knew uh, in that moment, that's what you were supposed to do next. Yeah, man. I thought uh, I'm going to become a trainer and then I'm going to open a gym because I've always wanted to own a business because I just like to lead. And I think I have a, a just a genetically inclined business acumen um, for whatever reason. 
I've always been good at orchestrating projects. And just like even 11th grade, getting <laughs> James and Modi to steal why get the cash register. And then I sell the popsicles and give them a small piece of the money and I take the rest of the money, you know? Um, so when I got out, I just, and this is 13 years ago or something, I hooked up the dial up connection on the computer and asked Jeeves how to become a personal trainer and really just follow the steps. And it, it wasn't super easy. It took me about a year to get into the fitness industry. Um, I did telemarketing for a while when I got out of jail and when I was on house arrest, but I step-by-step step got into the first Gold's Gym and then got promoted and, and it's kind of all she wrote. And at what point did you realize that there was more? Because it seems to me like this got you to the next stage of the journey before you, you got into, because I'm going to assume at some point you realized that as you train people, and I don't know, you tell me, like what, 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 what was it that led you getting into the food side of the business? Because I know for me, going back a million years ago, I was a personal trainer and uh, one of the things that I discovered is, you know, you can give the best advice, you know, you can give people the best workouts, but if you can't support them to make better decisions about what food they put in their mouth, they're never going to out train a bad diet. Yeah. So for me, um, to answer your first question, when did I know that there was more was when I sort of had that, that duality of like the God experience and the personal training experience. And it opened my eyes up to like, I don't have to be a career criminal. Um, for the rest of my life. Maybe I can be like my friends that pursue uh, legitimate careers, that go to college and, and do all that stuff. And so that was eye-opening for me because it showed me my potential um, a little bit. And so, of course, in, in my life, it's like you, you, you level up and then you see the potential for the next level yeah. and you level up and you see like a greater chasm for your potential. Um, but as far as the Superfit Foods, the inception story for Superfit Foods, I had... Um, gotten a job in sales at a, a gym and then became a sales manager and then became a GM for LA fitness, which is a nationwide health club here in the States and, uh, traveled, ended up moving to Jacksonville in 2012 and did that for about three years, two and a half, three years. And at that point in time, I, I really wanted to go out on my own. I, I had developed the skill to outmanage two or three levels up in the management. Um, you know, line. I was working for guys that I thought were idiots and they're making two, three, four times the money I am. And they're making that money because I'm doing such a good job developing the, my team within the health club, because they would use my gym as like a feeder store to put managers in other stores. And I thought, well, that's what the VP should do, not me. And then the VP gets paid for it. Um, so I figured if I'm, if I'm this good, I should really figure it out on my own and open up a gym. And so, and then that'll really prove to me whether or not I know what I'm doing. Uh, so in January of 2015, I had written a business plan and pitched an investor from Lakeland, Florida, where I'm from originally. And he approved a quarter million dollars. Um, so I took the leap of faith. And uh, the last weekend of January, I moved back home to Lakeland, Florida. Uh, unfortunately, that weekend, after celebrating, uh, Sunday morning, he calls me and he says, Jared, I have to back out of the investment. And I didn't know that people could do this. This is my first rodeo. Yeah. And so I, I said, Peter, what do you mean? Like this, I just moved home. I quit my job. He said, I'm really sorry. I, I can't do it. And so I had to cancel the equipment that was coming. had oh, to cancel man. the build out of this unit and didn't really have plan B. I didn't really know. N now my life is different. I, I make plan B, C, E, D, E, you know, like, <laughs> but Continue back then I was, playing, you know, I was 25. I was on fire, um, driven by faith and my experience. And so I looked across the table at brunch with my buddy and I said, Hey man, can I stay with you for a couple months? 
And he said, yeah, you've got three months. And I said, cool. I love the deadline. And uh, I reached out to another friend of mine that used to be, used to work for me at the gym. He was now a manager. And I said, Hey man, I just want to train. I'm back home. And he said, great. I don't have any clients for you, but if you want to come here, open up your book and start, you can, you can train and we can work out a split. And I said, that's great. So I, you know, born and raised in Lakeland, I wasn't really hesitant. Uh, so I spent 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. in this gold's gym. Within a month, I was fully booked. I did a bunch of free sessions. I sold 90% of them. And I was full-time within a month. Really, really happy. One of the highlights of my life. And so got to set my own rates. I'm making great money. And then about two months into that, I meet uh, who would become my partner at Superfit Foods. And he approaches me. He's an older guy. He owns a supplement shop. And he's got some business experience. And he says, Jared, I heard you wanted to open a gym. Do you still want to do that? And I said, no, I think God's got something different for me. And he was like, well, what else would you do? And I thought, I don't know yet. This is the only time in my life I, I hadn't really thought about that for a little while. And he's like, well, what about meal prep? Uh, at the time, I was a, a competitive bodybuilder um, planning to go pro. Uh, I didn't. I took a different route, obviously. Um, I was a nutrition spe- am, was a nutrition specialist. And all my clients got really great results because I, I was diligent with following up with them and holding them accountable to eating certain things. I created plans for like, if you got to eat fast food, this is what you should order. I was just really into it. Um, and so he's, he said, what about a meal prep company? You seem to be good with the food stuff. And I thought, you know, seems easy enough. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't, but we did it anyways. And um, so about a week later, I came up with the name Superfit Foods. We got incorporated. About two weeks into the business, uh, my partner, whose name, is, whose name was Frank, his name is Frank, who was my partner. He would, he would get involved in that, about two weeks into it. I was like, Frank, don't touch anything. Um, everything you touch breaks. So let me, let me run the show. And he was cool with it because I did really well. And we grew really fast. We did like 500K the first year, um, just from my personal connections in the fitness industry in Lakeland. And we doubled the first like two years and then expanded into Jacksonville and then expanded nationwide. Um, so that's the inception story of Superfit Foods. And what did you grow the revenues to before you ended up the exit? We did two million. Um, we finished it just over two million last year. Nice. Um, the years four and five were really, really hard to get the same growth trajectory. But you, of course, it's all relative, right? Because when yeah. the numbers grow, it's hard to double them. Uh, but we sustained, I think, just around twenty percent average growth year after year. Um, bootstrapped, no funding, sold the business debt-free, Beautiful. Um, bought out Frank two and a half years ago. So it's been a journey, man, a lot of ups and downs, um, but very happy with how it, how it all culminated in the end. And when did E3 come on the, on the scene? So E3 started about three years ago, about two years into the super fit journey. And the reason for that is because again, at the core of me, I'm entrepreneurial. Um, I can't commit to one thing all the time. I can work a full-time thing. Like Superfit was always 50, 60 hours for a long time, but I still had more in me and people would always reach out seeing the success with Superfit Foods and ask me for help. And they'd say, man, Jared, can I take you to coffee? I've got some questions. And, you know, after going to coffee with a, an acquaintance two or three times, you're kind of like, man, I got to charge you. Like, um, we're not best friends, uh, but I want to help. And so Having people I, pick your brain can be a very expensive exercise. Yeah, yeah. And I remember- it's funny because I think about that different. I asked a guy one time a couple of years ago, can I pick your brain? And he said, you know, it's a really weird idea. You picking my brain. 
And ever since then, I try not to even say it. It's like a weird thought now. Um, but, but yeah, people would reach out and ask for help. And so I thought, you know, I need to legitimize this practice. I'll do it the same way I did training. I'll charge per hour, obviously at a premium and I'll give them practical steps and then hand them the tools. Like, and I thought, you know, what do I want that company to look like? And I rattled a lot of ideas and names in my brain. And I know I want to encourage people, but I don't want to just be an inspirational speaker. Uh, I want to, um, encourage, educate and empower them. So it's, it's sort of in that order. That's how I go about, that's my teaching style. I encourage people, kind of open them up, educate them, give them the tools, and then empower them to do it on their own. That's hopefully what I aim to do. And so I named it E3. And so with that and with what you've done, you've been through this cycle a few times now. So you've built a couple of businesses. You've built your own business. You've built a business that you've scaled. You've built a business that you've sold which for most people is the holy grail of entrepreneurship because, you know, a lot of people can get started, a lot of people can build a business, but to pay, take a business to exit, that takes uh, an extra level of, um, I guess you could say, of organization and follow through. But what I'm curious to know is, you know, now you advise clients, you, you're more than likely going to go and, you know, do something again, I, I would assume. But what have you learned? Because there's a whole range of people probably listening to this right now. Some people are starting a business, some people are already in the business and scaling, and some people are going to be at that stage where they're thinking, you know, what's next? Should I sell or, you know, should I keep building it? So when you have a client that's going to be starting a business, like what are some of the steps that you prepare them for or advise them on? Or suggest for them and go, okay, if you're starting out, here are, here are the top three, four, five, 20 things you need to know. What's, what's some advice you could give someone who's listening to this who's maybe thinking about starting something? One of the first things that I would say is make sure that whatever you're starting is something you're truly passionate about. Um, and the reason for that is because if you're driven only by the potential profitability, that might take you far enough and you might get lucky enough to see an exit one day. But if things get really, really tough, which they most likely will, um, especially if you're bootstrapped. Uh, I mean, you see how volatile the economy can be without us being able to plan or control. Um, if you're not passionate enough, man, you won't have the resilience to push through when you don't see a paycheck for three, four, five, six months, when you have to put more of your own personal capital in the business, when you need to take a personal loan to put into the business so you can pay the personal loan off later to keep the business going while you're not getting an income. And then you ask for a rent disbursement. Um, you've got to love what you do. Yeah. Right. And that's a true story for me. Yeah, and, no, uh, I agree. and so you have to be, you have to be passionate about it. And everyone says that. Um, but, but it's true. Um, you, again, you could be lucky enough to just start a business for money and make it all the way, but you'd be the outlier. You'd be the, uh, the, unlikely individual. Can I ask you a question? Because, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, very similar things, especially in the realms of success. It's almost like, you know, as as a few greats have said, success leaves clues. And oftentimes, you know, there's, there's not a lot of new information circul circulating around when it comes to, you know, starting out. And, and I mean, no disrespect with what I'm saying, because I actually want to go a level deeper, you know, because people say, you've got to love what you do. You've got to be passionate about what you do. And, you know, sometimes that's difficult when you're not making money. Sometimes that's really difficult when things are really, really hard, but it's a lot easier to do it if you love it than if you're just trying to do it for something that is outside of yourself. But I guess my question, at what point, and do you give any credibility, uh, credence or credit to your curiosity? Because it seems to me you're a very smart guy. You understood personal training. You understood a level of uh, you know managing and creating teams. But at what point did you get curious 
about the business side? Because it's one thing to be a great personal trainer. You know, it's one thing to be able to run a gym. But to own a gym, you know, to own any business, there's got to be a level of point. There's got to be a point at which people reach where they go, you know what? Fuck, I'm really good at what I do, but I might as a technician, but I need to learn more about this business thing. How much How much credence do you give to, to, to your curiosity to try and, you know, not just become a great trainer, but actually to try to work out how to run a business? So my curiosity, I would give a significant amount of credit to it because the reason why I end up starting my own business most of the time is because I want to try new things and these companies won't let me. Um, So you have these walls where you're just bouncing off the wall, but your curiosity is held within this bubble, right? The old school way of running businesses where I know that I have potential to take, you know, I'm running somebody else's gym and, hey, we should really try this and we should hire this person and we should test these things out. And it's like, no, let's stick to the status quo. I can't live with that. and so that's why I ended up leaving the corporate health club world. I thought, man, I really want to do some, some different things. I think we can treat people differently. I think we can create opportunities for our staff differently. I think if we create good opportunities for our staff, we'll create a better environment for the members and it creates a virtuous cycle, right? And it's like that mindset um, got me in a lot of trouble as a manager because I would try new things that weren't authorized. And so for me growing up and and even in the business world, my curiosity got me in enough trouble to where I was forced to leave um, because I wanted to control the environment. Whether it's a curiosity issue or a control issue is irrelevant. It's just what brought me to where I am, you know? Um, So I think it's, I think it's important. And I think, uh, and you mentioned something about passion being something people talk about and you're right. Passion doesn't pay the bills. So it has to be economically sound. It has to be a capitalistically driven passion that you have um, because a lot of passions can make you go broke. And so you have to mix passion with business acumen. And that's why you see a lot of great businesses where there's one really passionate entrepreneur, creative, uh, curious, and then you have a business guy that partnered up with the passionate guy and they created something great. Um, And so sometimes that's what it looks like for somebody else out there. And for me, it just, I happen to be able to use both sides of the brain, I think, right? Um, And so the the other thing I would say is financial competency. Uh, Growing up broke for me, I was pretty good with money because I didn't have any. So any that I did was budgeted well, it was used, it was stretched over a long period of time. And so the same thing applied to the business. And I think a lot of people growing up maybe that are well off or aren't given the responsibility of balancing their own checkbook at a young age can fail quickly in the business world because you think money's just going to literally fall off the tree, right? Mommy and daddy are going to give you more and maybe they will, but that won't last forever. But I've also Um, seen people make the other mistake where they come from nothing and, you know, they're desperate to make more money. Then all of a sudden, you know, they, they start something, they start making money that then, but then they prioritize that money to other things other than the business yeah, you know, and you end up being the you know the personal trainer who gets to one hundred thousand dollars or one hundred and twenty, or maybe you know, maybe become a top trainer earning maybe one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but then five years later, you're still earning the same money because you're pulling all the cream off the top for lifestyle and for you know yeah. for gadgets and for for gimmicks. How much of your success has come down to your ability to be able to? And I'm gonna this is gonna sound small. Play a smaller game 
with the goal of playing something bigger. And what I mean by that is because oftentimes people get entrepreneurship is celebrity now. Like and every, man, every man and their dog who's got an Instagram account, they're a business owner. And so oftentimes they think, well, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I need to look like an entrepreneur. I need to dress like an entrepreneur. I need to drive an entrepreneur's car. You know, I need to go on entrepreneurial-like holidays. And so as a result, they end up redlining their entire financial capabilities through this process of trying to grow a business. And as a result, you know, they either end up defunct or on a dance floor that they can't actually get off. You know, and I know yeah. for you know for myself and for a lot of our successful clients that we work with, we are very big on war chesting. We're very big on you know just having very basic lives. Um, you know, and you know, as, as a side note, I've got about four hundred high end clients with turnovers between one million up to three hundred million, and not one of them is a Ferrari driving suit wearing, you know, Lamborghini admiring client. Not that they don't admire nice things, but they've learned how to use their money in intelligent ways with a long term perspective. How much of that is your success? How much have you been able to stay away from the shiny objectitis to be able to focus on reinvestment? Or did you get sucked into it? Because I know I did uh, at some point in the journey and learn some lessons and come out the other side. Or have you always been quite good at just taking what you need to get by and reinvesting the rest? Oh, man, I wish I could say that I was. Um, you know, early on, I uh, saw a little bit of success and became a little excessive, not with everything, because I'm not excessive with clothes, uh, stuff like that. It's not really a big deal to me, but um, did get an expensive car, did get the expensive apartment. And uh, fortunately, you can get out of the apartment in a year, but the car, not so much. And so um, I would say it was irresponsible and I wouldn't recommend it for anyone. But for me, it but was it a good lesson? Was it a good lesson? Was, was it a lifelong lesson. valuable lesson that had to be invested in in order to gain it? Yeah. Um, you know, I... I remember I had a, I got a Jeep Grand Cherokee and it was leather. It was limited edition. I bought a cash for 3,300 and I was debt free, but then I got a raise at work and I ended up trading it in for a F-150 lifted uh, mud tires and leather interior. And then now I had a payment for six years, but I had the cool truck that I wanted in high school. And I wouldn't necessarily take that back because that's something I wanted for years, you know, um, but I couldn't afford it and it hurt, but it pressured me to get to the next level. And I remember there was a time at the, at the gym I was working at at the time, the sales management role was up for grabs. It was me and another guy fighting for this thing. And honestly, if it wasn't for some of the financial uh, expectations that I had for myself, I may not have gotten it because I had to, I had to win regardless. Um, so again, I wouldn't recommend it because that's a variable tool. But for me, it motivated me, but it did teach me a lot. I'm, I'm different now, right? I have a paid off truck. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to trade it in and pay cash for my next electric vehicle in January of 2022, right? I'm a lot wiser with my finances because I've learned those lessons of like, dang, I shouldn't have done that because I had the truck and I don't remember feeling that much cooler, uh, especially not in, in, in equal weight to the cost, you know, like. Well, let me ask you a question because I call this the two-week rule and because I, I know I went through this when I went through my excessive phase of, you know, suits, cars and watches. I thought something was missing and so then I'd buy it and then I'd feel amazing for two weeks and then two weeks later I'd be like, fuck, man, nothing's really changed. Like, did yeah. you have periods like that where you'd get something and then you, after a while you're like, man, the, the, the shine is gone? 100%. Um, still get that from time to time just with less excessive things, you know, you yeah. see some something on Amazon that's like a new foam roller and you're like, this is no different than, <laughs> um, unfortunately you're like 60 bucks now or something. Um, I did have the Michael Kors watches and the nice dress shoes 
And I remember buying those things. I'm like, I just bought this because I saw someone else with it at the club. And now if anything, I feel worse because it's not me. Mm. Like I don't need a five pound watch on, you know, like this is uncomfortable. Um, it just looks weird. And I'm attracting the type of girls that I'm not even really into. Yeah. So for me, it was, it was an eye opener and it, it took a little bit, it took a little while. And I think that speaks to like the circles that you spend your time in too. We could probably go in a totally different direction there, but uh, you know, when you're trying to fit in with the wrong people, you're going to spend the wrong money. Well, so. let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think it's often something that people talk about, but they don't necessarily, you know, cause people say, Oh, you know, if you take the five people that you spend the most time with and you divide their income by add all their incomes up divided by five, that'll be your number within about 10%. Now there's a lot of truth in that, but I, I also think there's a lot of misunderstanding because people think, well, I just got to hang out with five people who earn more money than me. If that's the key to success, then is that all I've got to do? What are some of the lessons you've learned around who you spend time with? And I don't just mean from a networking perspective. I mean from a community perspective. I mean from a relationship, you know, a connection perspective. What are some of the big lessons you've learned around that? And I don't even, I can't remember the last time I thought about a friendship in terms of their income um, or even pursued a new friendship or an existing friendship because of their success. Um, the things that I am attracted to now in my life are character attributes. They're virtues. I've gone through some shit in my life and I've had deep depression periods where if it wasn't for one or two guys in my circle um, who I don't even know how much money they make now, I've been friends for years. Um, if they weren't there for me emotionally uh, and not just to hear me cry, but to lift me up, to encourage me to, to say, Jared, what are you complaining about? Like depending on the, the period, right? Um, to smack me upside the head when I go back out with that same girl or whatever it is, you know? Um, so I look for character traits and virtues, man. I look for people that I want to be more like, not that I want to be as wealthy as, um, but fortunately these are still, these are successful people. Um, it's just not what draws me to them, but I think, uh, you know, your character traits and obviously your business acumen, you combine those things and you've probably got a good future ahead. Um, and so that's, for me, that's what I look for. And that's what's made me a better person because money is, I mean, anybody can make money, but to be a person that you like to spend time with, like to, to love yourself. And I don't want to get hyper spiritual here, but there's a lot of rich people out there that have horrible characters. Um, and there was a period of time where I was making money and I felt empty and I thought, well, how does this add up? Um, and I was, sleeping around. I was living a, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but like I was treating people badly. Everyone was a means to an end for me. Um, and at the end of the day, I did not like myself. And I looked at the circle that I had and I thought, well, there's no, no wonder one I'm acting this way and no wonder I'm attracting those type of people because I'm that type of person and I need to change. And so I made a, a conscious effort to pursue people that I wanted to be more like, and it was more like, I want to be kind. I want to be generous. I want to be intelligent. I want to be wise. I want to be finan a financial steward. Um, the, my circle, I'm probably the most irrational financial person in my circle, uh, because I got a, a group of great guys that I've fought to become friends with over the years. And now, you know, uh, I can lean on them for anything. So I highly recommend, um, pursuing the type, the people that you want to be like, not that you want to have what they have, uh, tangibly. Relationships, how have they influenced your ability to produce success? And um, what are the biggest <laughs> lessons you've learned around that being a young, virile, young, <laughs> young man? Oh, man. Um, so uh, I've learned a lot. 
Um, well, a bit of transparency here. Like I mentioned earlier, I grew up for a period of time without my mom. And I think psychologically that affected the way that I do relationships for a period of time. And uh, met a girl 2015. I had dated on and off. And I've always been pretty good at getting the type of girl that I like, I guess you could say. And um, I'm a people person. So for whatever that's worth. And met the girl, fell in love right away, and she ended up being a loony tune and uh, really toxic and controlling. But I let it ride uh, for, you know, sometimes men, at least we can think with different entities. And so um, <laughs> that certainly affected, uh, I, man, I'm probably gonna write a book about it one day, but it, dude, it, it made me, I don't know how to explain it, but it put me in overdrive to prove to her and to the world that I can truly become successful because she met me uh, in the, during that time where I'd quit my job and then the gym didn't work. So I was like rock bottom, you know, uh, all things considered. And she was not, she, for sure she's bipolar. And so one day she's like, you're the greatest, Jared. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I'm like, what? That's awesome. I'm going to do that, you know? Um, and then the next day she's like, you shouldn't do that. You're not capable of that. You're just like your dad, da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, I'm approved wrong now, you know? And so there was a lot of that back and forth for a couple of years and praise God, we're not even remotely doing that anymore. Um, you know, it's been a couple of years now. So, but for the first couple of years of my entrepreneurial journey, starting Superfit, um, even with recreating friendships and it was like, man, screw this girl. I'm a prove her wrong. I can do all these things. Um, and then on the days that she was like, Jared, you're capable of anything. I'm like, you're right. So there's something to say about overcoming some type of toxic relationship. Um, and fortunately, uh, I think the key to that is not having a victim mentality. Um, you know, I was always ready to persevere and prove the world wrong. And when I met her, it was like, well, I'm going to prove her wrong while I'm at it. And, uh, and maybe it was some type of weird mommy problems or something. Who knows, right? Well, but, look, I think we yeah. don't always get the person yeah. we want at the time. We always get the person we need for that period. And, and it seems to me that she um, reflected some pretty some pretty solid stuff back at you that helped you learn. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm certainly one that has the belief that, you know, relationships are, um, you know, a reason, a season, a lifetime. But sometimes we attract certain types of relationships to show us attributes and the virtues that we know we want. And sometimes we are attracting certain people that have, you know, attributes and virtues to go, you know what? Yeah, now that I've experienced that, I've realized I don't want that. Uh, yeah. But sometimes from afar, it might appear like a you know an, an attractive trait, mate. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation so far. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish off with um, two more questions. Number one, what's the biggest mistake that you've made in business, and what did you learn? And this can be a life mistake. Uh, this can be a business mistake. I'll let I you say choose. it's the biggest mistake, but I wouldn't be here without it. Uh, but is not vetting my partnerships. Yeah, nice. Um, bad partnerships have costed me to date about $331,000. Uh, so when people go into business these days, even when you know I'm consulting a, two best buddies and they want to do a thing, I'm like, man, you guys need to really uh, make sure this is, you're going to get married. This is a marriage. And do you want to be married to this guy or this girl? Um, and the only way out of this is for a sale or for a toxic breakup, man. And so um, that's a lesson that I've learned and I've had to learn it three times to really get the picture. And that's just kind of how I learn lessons yeah, sometimes. Um, you really got to vet your partnerships. Don't want to let emotions uh, drive the inception of whatever business you're going to pursue. 
you know, I, and I guess we, we hear this word banded around a lot. And to me, it's like the word entrepreneur. Sometimes it gets, if we use a word too much, it loses its meaning. Uh, especially if it's used in a generalized context. And, you know, one of the things that I've observed in life and in nature is every every organism on this planet was put here for a specific reason. You know, whether it be a microbe, an ant, a bee, a butterfly, a bird, um, a dog, a horse, you know, all, all beings serve a purpose, you know, a purpose to do something, to, to provide something as a part of the ecosystem. You know, humans are a little bit of an unusual animal whereby we have these uh, frontal lobes. We have the ability to be able to think, discern, we have free will. But from your perspective, based on the life that you've led so far, what have you learned about why you are here? What is the purpose of you being on earth? Why do you exist? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this question. And uh, the answer, just like the question, is not super simple. Um, I have a few missions in life. Uh, so I'll sort of read to you my long version of that. Um, I think that I'm here to encourage, educate, and empower others to live happier, healthier lives. But that's vague. Uh, so more specifically, I don't want to just help people. I want to put resources in their hand so that they can help themselves. Um, I think, like you mentioned, the human is capable of far greater than what the majority of us are taking advantage of, um, despite our IQ or anything like that. Um, and at the end of the day, because I'm passionate about fitness, I want to leave a legacy that makes fitness affordable, attractive, and accessible for everyone in the world. And that's what I want to be known for. Jared, that's an incredibly uh, well thought out answer. Mate, I've got to say, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. If people want to find out more about you, you've just released a book, The Six Practical Ways to Never Stop Growing, um, which I believe is on Kindle. Uh, where can people find about you? Where can they find out about the book? Where can they find you? So, uh, I'm most active on Instagram. It's at Jared AXL Grabiel. Um, my website is jaredgrabiel.com. You can get the self-help book, Six Practical Ways to Never Stop Growing, uh, on Amazon or anywhere online that books are sold. Um, and yeah, you can find out all about me on, on those platforms. Fantastic. Jared, Jared Graybill, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being on uh, Unstoppable, mate. Really appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me, man. It's been great. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com